Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is definitively part of that effort. Uh, today, we're doing our next partner meeting, where I talk to a handful of my partners, and we cover things like the overall view of the broader market, venture market, blockchain market, and we share some business advice. Last time I did my first monologue in the history of this short-lived podcast. And today I wanted to share a second thought. My wife and I have long used a phrase, uh, insecurity is the root of all evil. And uh, I wanted to share the perspective that as business managers, owners, and operators, we're all aligned and dialed into a bottom line, generating revenue and bottom line, hitting, trying to hit profit numbers or growth or whatever it is that our investors and shareholders all think about. Now, while we can't parent everybody from their childhood on, there is a lot of insecurity and emotional angst felt by a large population around the country, but also within the business community. To the extent you are listening to this and you operate a company and you have the opportunity to choose to create a greater sense of security, emotional encouragement, and support for people, it is worthwhile. It will have more than positive impact on short-term retention. You will help people find their stronger self and be more successful in their roles. That will have a positive impact in your company, but it will also have an incrementally positive impact on society. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the partner meeting. Mike, what's up, man? Where are you? I'm uh, currently recording live from my good friend's wife's closet because we're in deep diligence on a marketplace for apparel. And I wanted to immerse myself in what it feels like to uh, really understand the product. <laughs> You're fired. You know that, right? Like, this is not diligence. Yeah, it's cool. You know, I'm, I might be living up here for the week. This there is diligence. Right. This is how um, VCs get their hands dirty. They say we don't get our hands dirty, <laughs> but I'm up here doing it. This right is now. why. Okay. The, the, this is why VCs get a bad rap. Okay, here we are. Yeah. Um, what's up in the venture world, buddy? Yeah. So I think like high level, it seems like the market is unsticking a little bit, but the continued uncertainty in public markets is certainly not opening up the venture world the way I thought it would early on into the kind of fall season here as we got out of the summer months. Uh, there is some good shines of, uh, you know, light, beams of light that are coming through. We're seeing some deals get done. Again, I think it's just a matter of like prices venture capitalists expect, prices founders expect starting to meet at a place where deals get done. We're seeing uh, C deals get done sub, sub 10 million again. We're seeing a lot of Series A's get done sub 40 million again. Uh, again, as mentioned in previous conversations, we think this is really healthy for the startup environment for both founders, for both employees, and for certainly for investors. So on that side, bullish. But you know, for founders right now, like what do you do, right? Like if deals aren't getting done, you're building your company. What can you be doing to put yourself in the best position? And something that we were talking about earlier, I think it's a great time to be building relationships, right? Uh, it's not reaching out to VCs with a, hey, we're raising ask. It's reaching out to VCs with like a, hey, this is what's going on in the business. Do you have 10 minutes or 15 minutes to chat? I'd love to get your thoughts on what you've about to see in other companies in your portfolio do at this stage. Uh, really reach out, build relationships, start to build rapport so that when you do need to raise capital, it's not a 
wham, bam, kind of, hey, we just met. Let's go from first date to marriage. It's uh, hey, we've been dating. We really get to know each other and, and we're excited to invest and build a long-term partnership. Right. We're back in uh, with gravity in the market. Gravity has returned where you actually build relationships and spend time diligence in companies and get to know people. Um, it might be a new yeah. skill for founders that entered in the last two years to kind of be back to this human dimension to the fundraising cycle. Uh, one thing, though, is, man, when you get, you know this, when you get 50 founders a day saying, hey, you have 15 minutes, you can't do it. It's just physically impossible. And you turn into the bad guy and it feels terrible to say no to everybody. What are some techniques founders could be doing to actually open the door with new relationships to get to know people when they're not in a fundraising cycle? Yeah, I think first and foremost, putting together good, thoughtful updates, uh, not 25 pages long, not down to the you know contribution margin, bullet points, how we calculated this, but just high level, easy to read, quick snippets on why your business is important and why people should be paying attention to it. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how to make a good pitch deck and we can dive, certainly spend some more time on that. But what you're trying to do is get the meeting, cater your updates to how do I get the meeting and get people excited about the business so that you can, to your point, rise through the 50 people that are also asking for those times. I also think another tip for folks out there um, to get away from the transactional nature of the relationship and look, there's a transaction both sides are aware of. We get it. Come, come bearing gifts. Right. Reach out and say, hey, I got a friend who's raising money. Do you want the intro? That's a good look. Yeah. Right. Or, totally. hey, I bumped into this person looking for a new job. You know, people, everyone knows people. Uh, anyone in your portfolio need a really great sales guy. This guy's awesome. Right. Those are those little nuggets are a great way to start a relationship. And you change you change it from like across the table to a, hey, I'm in the startup ecosystem with you. I'm an innovator. I'm building. We're all helping each other and it becomes more of a peer dynamic, which I think is super healthy. hundred percent. I mean, you know, everyone knows that everyone's friends. Yeah. Everyone's friends are raising money too. Right. So it, it's your exact point. The ecosystem is not massive. It's small and founders have friends. VCs have friends. Everyone has friends. And, and the goal is to is share and be helpful across the board. So totally love getting founder yeah. intros to other founders, especially when they come from vetted folks you, you know, may have had a few interactions with already. Back to that startup mantra, the more you give, the more you get. Totally. And I think to your point before around um, founders not being used to being in deep diligence cycles, uh, I bet you a lot of investors are not used to deep diligence cycles too, right? If you're one of no these doubt. new 500 venture firms that popped up over the last two years, like this might be the first time it's actually taking a month for a deal to go from first meeting to close. It's actually taking two weeks of calls and diligence and, 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 and deep information drives. Uh, and I'm sure that's weird for some people. I think it's an opportunity, though, hopefully for them. Uh, for I'm sure everyone yeah. has different backgrounds, but if people haven't experienced that yet in prior lives of their current fund, um, now is a good time to slow down, right? There is something magical yeah, that happens totally. when you sit with a deal over a weekend or a couple of weeks where you're talking to different people, you're looking under rocks. Um, you kind of get, you reduce the, the variable of human psychology and the emotions of the decision-making. And I have found that if you let it totally. evolve, you'll have less, you'll find, you'll end up making better decisions. Yeah. Less buyer's remorse on both sides, right? We had a founder last week who for the first time said, I'm meeting all the investors in person. He was doing 
you know, uh, East Coast awesome. trip. And if, if you, you know, recalling back to two, three years ago, we never did a deal without meeting the founder in person. It was unheard of, right? We all got very used to that mentality during COVID. But I think we're swinging back the other way now where there's time. Like it doesn't, the deal doesn't have to get done in two weeks. And yes, for a founder, it actually does make sense to spend that time in person with your investors to make sure you're building a good relationship. Yeah, and totally. And also, if you, if an investor is a prick, you want to figure that out early. And in person, yeah. the body language, there's a lot of benefit. All right, Chris, what do we have this week? Hello, Mark. Um, we have a very interesting week on the global stage uh, in, in the financial markets. Um, first off, let's start from domestically. Earning, Q3 earnings have started. And um, what we've seen on a on average is a stronger expected, stronger than expected result coming from the banks, the retail sector, and the energy sector, airlines, and pharma. That has definitely lifted it, lifted some of the um, the sentiments in the U.S. markets, specifically uh, using, let's say, J.P. Morgan as an example. I always use them; they're you know one of the biggest. Banks with both retail presence and investment banking presence. Uh, what you've seen is um, a slowdown, certainly in their investment banking division in earnings, but was compensated by a much higher net interest margins. So, to explain that a little bit, um, interest rate in the U.S. obviously has been rising, but banks lend out the money in the longer dated part of the curve. So they lend out a higher interest rate. Than when they borrow, so when they take your deposit, they're taking the money at a front end part of the interest rate. Usually, for checking savings these days, uh, it's actually still near zero. So as interest rate goes higher, their net interest margins goes higher, and that boosted their earnings basically across the board for any banks that have a, uh, a retail presence. Well, what I would say about that is, um, first of all, worse. Bit, not even halfway through the earnings season yet, and and the big techs are, have yet to come. And it, based on what we've seen so far from a few of them, like Snap, um, uh, the picture is not too great. So we'll see what happens next week with Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, um, Alphabet. Uh, I'd I'd urge investors to stay patient at this juncture um, instead of acting too quickly on any sort of positive twist in the earnings. Outside of the U.S., uh, we've seen, I think the biggest news for me was, um, this for the past week, um, is China's net 20th National Congress. Investors have been sort of very jittery around, around this event and, and, and not really sure what uh, and if any sort of unexpected event would happen. So far, um, that there have been very few twists uh, that we didn't anticipate. That's not to say uh, it's, it's, it's good. Uh, Xi Jinping, the, the, the general secretary of China, um, is likely to be appointed in the party's general, as the gener- party's general secretary on Sunday, so tomorrow. This will be an unprecedented third term, which also paves the way for him to be influencing the decision-making body of China, basically in perpetuity. The one twist I'm, uh, you know, I saw coming from the, actually yesterday's uh, meeting was that the premier, Li, is kicked out of the Communist Party's uh, standing committee. And he's one of the few people remaining in the entire government body that, that is at least perceived to not be on the same team as uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, 
So, you know, if you will, the last bit of hindrance to uh, seize rule in perpetuity. That was not good. Uh, if you're rooting, if you're rooting, ruling, if you're rooting for a more uh, democratic society in China, more Western friendly um, um, Chinese party in China, um, that was certainly not a good news. Investors are also very anxious about China's stance on Taiwan. Uh, of course, we got the Nancy Pelosi visit, you know, earlier this year, and we got the chip ban. Uh, what has come out of the the National Congress is that the the, the party has has resolutely um, decided to continue to oppose and contain Taiwan's independence. Their stances become firmer compared to before. And um, further, further, you know, further from that, you know, international investors were also hoping for some sort of guidance on the ease of COVID-19 restrictions, which has been very punishing for the economy so far. That didn't happen. Um, you know, now we're expecting the seven day to 10 day quarantine restrictions to continue for some while, well into 2023. So all in all, um, it wasn't um, a, a friendly meeting to in international investors uh, in China, and uh, and more to come. So I'll, I'll I'll urge everyone to pay closer attention to that front. Of course, we've got you know away from China, we've got UK uh, with the volatility there triggered by the resignation the resignation of the prime minister. Uh, what you know, I think more so than the stock market. We would people would pay should pay more attention on the treasury market or the gilt market in in the UK. Thirty year gilts has yet uh, you know ten year gilts have broken ten percent four percent right uh, yet again, and thirty year gilts is now coming you know slowly but surely grinding back to the highest level. Um, and that's definitely introduced a lot of volatility to to stocks and to the currency market. Which then have which then have implications on um, foreign exchange and 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 sort of exports and import market and, and the broader economy in general. So that, that that was the that's what happened this week. God, that's so cheery. Um, we uh, I'm going to add on to the fire. Bloomberg had a report that one of their internal models now says 100 percent chance America's going into a recession, which lines up with everything you've been saying. Um, the stuff in China, I think, isn't a surprise, but it is terrifying, right? Yeah, just to put I, a put a word on it. I agree. I, I don't mean to be um very bearish on the market, but what I what I want to stress is, um, if you look at the, the history of financial markets, every year we've got volatility, every year we've got uncertainties, but generally it's contained to be on a global stage at least a couple, two to three. But this year, the, the amount of uncertainties has gone way beyond that. We're looking at, um, of course, the Ukraine war, you know, what's happening in China, what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in South America. Any of these can eventually blow up to the point where it, it's, um, it's difficult to be contained. So investors don't like that. So as a result, risky assets around the globe are pricing in the likelihood of a further adjustment, uh, and which also in turn could be could then turn into a prolonged recession, um, backed by lower 
spending quality, lower lower spendings and, and more sort of supply disruptions. So let's take this back to innovation, right, down to the private markets. And I love the, the macro view because obviously we're dancing in a bit of a firestorm right now on a lot of fronts. Yeah. But deals are still happening in the venture market, right? There's a, there's a fair bit of activity, actually. Uh, valuations are way down. We're seeing that kind of across the board, particularly in the growth stage. How do you think these, uh, the, the macro trend of the market kind of converges in the private market over time? Great question. That's something that's certainly been on my mind um, as investors sort of across the entire capital spectrum. I think over time, investors will need to, first of all, digest information and get used to it and then be more creative in the way they think about investing. Instead of focusing on maybe, you know, your vanilla uh, um, investments straight into, you know, common equities, what, what I've been thinking about, what investors on um, that I talked to have been thinking about is to use more maybe complicated structures, maybe introduce a little bit of optionality, introduce a little bit of structured equity um, that will protect the downside by maybe giving up a little bit of the upside. So instead of potentially buying straight into um, you know, the A's and B's and C's rounds directly, we're thinking about uh, potentially using structured equity to anchor and invest into the future rounds at a future rate of valuation, but also uh, get protection on the downside. So, you know, we just got to be creative. There, there are always plenty of great opportunities in whatever market. Yeah, we're, we're actively investing. I mean, I, I feel like this um, is for better or for worse and doesn't always feel great. It is a buyer's market. Yeah. Uh, it's a good time to be deploying long-term capital where liquidity is expected to happen, you know, five to seven years from now and likely a very different dynamic. Uh, the structured equity stuff, we are not seeing at the early stage too heavily, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but we are starting to see it at the growth stage where there's been a real contraction in the capital market, even more extreme. Uh, and so structured equity for folks listening means there's like triggers. You know, if this performance number isn't hit, something happens. And so it's an equity investment with a bunch of rules on it, a bunch of red tape. And uh, it kind of has some properties of debt in that regard. Uh, and so it's a... Uh, it's a very attractive construct for investors because it takes risk out. But, you know, there is a point, obviously, where it's, I think it's too onerous on the companies and the entrepreneurs. Yeah. And it doesn't just apply to equity market either. We're also looking at, you know, private debt, for instance, as, as an extension to our view on, 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 the, on the capital structure of, of the company. And there, of course, there are, there are, there are even further extrapolations from that. And then you, as an investor, you want to explore all these options right now. Um, but like you said, it's a good time to, to deploy capital if you're cautious and be an opportunistic and use, use this sort of more to your own advantage. Um, and it, of course, it's a buyer's market. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I was having a conversation recently with someone. They're saying, okay, why, why deploy capital now when a lot of these companies that weren't strong are becoming weaker? And my response was, yes, but the companies that, that you don't, those are the ones where they're going to have trouble raising money. 
right? Weak companies that become weaker right now, it's not going to be pretty. But yep. strong companies that are continuing to perform and thrive, that are being punished virtually just because of the dynamic of the market, those are great places to deploy capital. Those companies can perform now, they'll perform later. Uh, and they're, they're a great place to continue to support them and, and their journey. And a great opportunity from an investment perspective to be along for the ride. Exactly. And we're, we're long-term investors, right? Right now, uh, as, as volatile as the market's been, it's still only forward-looking by six months, 12 months. And that is not our investment horizon. And beyond, and beyond that, it's always difficult to catch the bottom. Um, you don't want to be the one uh, with, with a drop description to, to, to time the bottom. So um, I, I think um, if, if you, you want to think about this, and if you have the capital, if you have, if you have the investment horizon that's, that's longer dated, and right now is certainly a time you should be at least thinking about um, um, deploying some of the capital. Um, and like you said, to support the good companies that, and, and just be on a, on the same, on the same journey that, that they've been, um, yeah, it's, it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't definitely, I wouldn't argue against that. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you as always. And for everyone listening, just a reminder, Chris is an SEC registered RIA. So nothing he said should be construed as financial advice, yada, yada, yada. Thanks, Mark. See you soon. All right, Brett. Let's dive in. What's going on in the blockchain universe? All right. Uh, so I want to talk about the OFAC sanctions. Uh, so OFAC, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, um, you know, essentially what they deal with is uh, with trade sanctions, uh, you know, based on foreign policies. So, uh, you know, they target or they try and avoid, uh, let's say, any transactions going to terrorists or, or North Korea, for example. Um, so what they recently did uh, was they sanctioned Tornado Cash, um, which is essentially a tool that allows you to put cryptocurrency into, say, a, a black box. It conceals it, and then you can send it out of that box uh, to other wallets. So it obscures where exactly uh, it came from. Um, and whoever touched Tornado Cash uh, has now had their, their addresses essentially blacklisted. So um, a number of applications that are, quote, decentralized uh, have centralized front ends, meaning the websites that you and I interact with in, in DeFi. Um, so they're complying with these OFAC sanctions as, as they probably should, because they obviously don't want to get arrested or have to deal with uh, any lawsuits. Um, but I specifically want to talk about uh, MEV, which is maximal extractable value. Um, and what that is, you can basically think of that as arbitrage or the facilitation of arbitrage by validators, since they have the power to reorder or accept or deny certain transactions. Um, and Flashbots uh, is a piece of software that essentially democratizes MEV for validators. Um, so it creates an open market for it because there would be a centralization effect of stake if there was a bunch of uh, validators who were really good at extracting MEV. So uh, what they've done is they've created a really great piece of software that allows uh, everybody to participate, uh, all the validators participate in, in MEV. Now, the issue is uh, over 58% of all validators use uh, their software called MEV Boost, um, and they've decided to comply with the OVAC sanctions. So. 
as a result, uh, about 53% of all uh, transactions in, included in blocks are uh, are complying with the OFAC sanctions. Uh, so that means about 47% of validators will include, if you're somebody who has your, your wallet blacklisted, 47% of validators will include transactions in your blocks. Um, and so everybody else, they, they won't include it, but they will append additional blocks to the blockchain uh, on top of uh, other transactions that uh, have been blacklisted. So it's not necessarily a big deal if you're somebody who's been sanctioned. It just means that your your transaction will take a little bit longer uh, to go through. Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's a slippery slope, right? You know, the, the base layer Ethereum uh, should be credibly neutral. It should be permissionless and censorship resistant, which it is. Um, but again, it's it's something that's, uh, you know, one of the core principles of the space uh, to be able to build everything on top of it. So nobody has to worry about, uh, you know, their transactions being censored. Um, how, how delayed are they when you, when you're saying these are a little delayed? Is it are we talking days or hours or weeks? Uh Depends. Uh, at this point, it's, it shouldn't be very long. I can't give you an, an exact number on how long it would take for a sanctioned uh, transaction to get through. Uh, not very long at this point. Uh, but as the number of sanctioned addresses uh, grows, then obviously your your chances of, of getting through get smaller and smaller. And then you have to pay much, much higher fees to the validators who aren't sanctioning. So it becomes very expensive uh, for the people that whose addresses have been sanctioned. Um, and also it's, uh, it's become quite burdensome for a lot of people who interacted with Tornado Cash, uh, for, uh, one specific reason, uh, is people are getting dusted, it's called. So if I'm somebody who, uh, you know, let's say I'm, I'm just a person who likes to disrupt things, I can put money into Tornado Cash and I can decide to say, okay, Mark, I'm going to, you know, mess around with you and send you, you know, one ETH into your account. So now all of a sudden, your address has technically interacted with Tornado Cash. So you, Mark, even though you had nothing to do with Tornado Cash, um, yeah. now have to deal with a number of different things that people are going through with reporting that you're you know, basically not a criminal. Um, so it's, uh, it's a very blunt uh, approach to, um, you know, essentially blacklisting these these addresses um and this comes alongside some other concerns about uh centralization of stake in the network for example lido and coinbase uh they run validators and they have a tremendous amount of the controlled stake uh which may or may not be a big deal some people think it is some people think it isn't um but it is something that i had written about in my paper which is you know one of the battles of uh decentralized networks is fighting against these natural forces of centralization, right? Centralizing uh, stake or centralizing you know, certain functions can make the market or, or make the network run more efficiently. Um, there's economies of scale involved, which causes a natural uh, force of centralization. So, um, you know, that's one of the things I highlighted in, in my paper about decentralization, which essentially is, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, activism involved in maintaining a decentralized network. So, we're starting to see some of that with some validators uh, no longer using, say, MEV Boost or, um, you know, Flashbots recently came out. They indicated that they 
um, you know, made made a change to their software called Suave. Uh, the details haven't been released yet, um, which will make censorship uh, hopefully more difficult for for validators and allow uh, the base layer to be a permissionless, credibly neutral layer of the internet. What's your take on this? I mean, I kind of get where the governments are coming from. If there's black boxes that are explicitly designed for mostly illicit use, putting yeah. some friction on that seems like a good policy if you're in that if you're in that policy role. It sounds like this has affected yeah. a lot of people who had no illicit uses as kind of a blanket policy, kind of came out of the blue. What's your kind of take on? Yeah. Is this the, you know, obviously a high friction stepping stone in a, a path towards a more balanced equilibrium between regulation and this platform? Or is this just yeah. regulators kind of not getting it and doing something aggressive? What, which is it? I think it's a, I think it's a combination of the two. Um, I don't think, uh, well, first of all, I think OFAC either uh, unwillingly uh, you know, didn't look into how Tornado Cash worked and what the ramifications were for people getting dusted, for example, um, or they just didn't care because their job is to, uh, you know, mitigate any, uh, you know, let's say transactions that, you know, $600 million going to North Korea, right? So not the vast majority of people in the, in the United States have no idea what Tornado Cash is. You know, they, they, they don't use it. Uh, even the people in crypto, right. probably a lot of people don't use it. Um, so for them, it was sort of like, well, $600 million to North Korea, which everybody can relate to, right? We'd probably uh, rather not that, that not happen um, versus, you know, shutting down uh, some some application that a very, very niche subset of people use. Um, so I agree that we're starting to see uh, an equilibrium play out between regulators and, uh, you know, the application layers and the protocols in crypto. Um, but what a lot of people are concerned with is, uh, the potential to, uh, you know, further increase uh, OFAC's uh, reach, uh, which includes at the protocol base layer. So, um, you know, uh, applying these things, uh, a blacklist directly on chain, which everybody has to adhere to. So um, it's it's a slippery slope. And I think a lot of people are nervous that, uh, you know, A, OFAC may have not have realized what they had done uh, and, you know, all the collateral damage that, that it caused to a lot of innocent people, um, or they, they just didn't care. And, uh, you know, they're just trying to protect whatever national interests, um, regardless of, you know, any potential innovations that could be had here. So um, I think a lot of people are sort of welcoming of, of some sort of regulation, uh, but they're worried about uh, potential overreach into uh, into the space and how it could stifle innovation. Is the crypto community, you know, the blockchain community in conversation with groups like OFAC yet? Are there lobbyists or trade groups or is OFAC hiring people from this community to kind of with that, that expertise? Like, is that information bridge gap being bridged or where are we in this process of like the natural evolution of making this kind of like a, a mature, respected thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's uh yeah, there's a very big presence uh, of crypto uh, in DC um, in terms of anybody crypto related, let's say getting hired into OFAC or, you know, anybody uh, in Congress, 
Um, that's uh, not clear to me, but um, there is a very big push to, you know, obviously educate regulators on what exactly this technology is, um, relate it to, to things that currently exist. For example, uh, HTTP, uh, hypertext transfer protocol is something we use every day on the internet, right? We see a HTTPS on our, on our websites. That's a protocol, but every time something that uses HTTPS for some criminal activity, they don't sanction HTTP, the protocol, right? Um, you know, they'll sanction the website, they'll sanction the people uh, behind it, uh, but they won't target HTTP uh, per se. So um, it should be a neutral base layer upon which, uh, you know, a certain way things are done. Um, but we are starting to see, uh, you know, like Coin Center uh, fight back with with their own uh, lawsuits against uh against uh, regulators. Uh, for example, um, you know, a lot of people that got dusted um, have filed a class action lawsuit um, saying that basically they had never interacted with this site. And now uh, one person, David Hoffman in particular, um, said that he needed to basically for the rest of his life every year fill out a form uh, to assure them that he's not a criminal. So, um, you know, that's quite burdensome for somebody who basically got dusted inadvertently, you know, by somebody just causing chaos. Yeah. I mean, good on OFAC for trying to solve real world problems. Um, hopefully there's a more equitable, equitable way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I, I think regulation is, is needed and I think it's important for the space to move forward, especially if we're going to go towards mass adoption. Um, but I think, uh, you know, applying sort of the blunt tools we have our, at our disposal now or any regulations that apply to, let's say, existing markets, um, I think those uh, should be adapted to the idiosyncrasies of crypto. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see some of that coming out of out of Congress that they're they're willing to be a little bit reasonable. But um, there's certainly some work to be done. Thank you, Brad. Very helpful. Appreciate your insights. All right, Fong, what do you have for us this week? Hey, Mark, how are you? Hi, everyone. Um, so today I wanted to talk about co-founders and whether or not you need one for your startup. So two of the companies that we have in the incubator right now were started by sole founders. And based on where they are, we're having a lot of conversations around whether they need co-founders. And if so, what the profile should be that we're looking for. And this is something a lot of people think about when they're starting out and sometimes well into the life of their businesses. Um, there are actually a lot of arguments that can be made for and against having a founding team. Just looking back on my own experience, I can't imagine going through what we did, fundraising, launching, building a business without a partner to work through it with. So from that perspective, I'm pretty well equipped to speak to reasons why it's a good idea to have a partner. Uh, first, you know, one reason is just emotional support. Starting a business is hard. There's lots of ups and downs, and it can be lonely and overwhelming. And having a co-founder who has a complementary temperament um, can be really instrumental and help balance you out. I think also uh, having a co-founder can increase productivity, right? There's two people, uh, two sets of hands. You can divide and conquer. You can get more work done. Uh, you'll also have a brainstorming partner who could help build on your ideas and make them even better. And then lastly, there's, uh, you know, I think it could increase your likelihood of success. Many VCs will only invest in founding teams versus sole founders. 
So it'll probably increase your chances of getting funded. And many well-known companies were started by founding teams, right? There's Warby Parker, Airbnb, Apple. So they must be doing something right, right? Uh, maybe not. Actually, uh, there's been a recent study by NYU and Wharton um, that maybe having a co-founder doesn't actually increase your likelihood of succeeding. So the study found that even though it's true that businesses with more than one founder were able to raise more money, sole founder businesses tend to survive longer and have higher revenue than those started by teams, which I, I found this really surprising and you know wondered why that would be. Um, a couple things came up. Faster, more efficient decision making. So there's only one person making decisions. So you know there's there's no one holding up the process. And secondly, sole founders sometimes are less risk averse. They make bolder moves that can really help drive the business because there's not someone there checking checking them. So um, you know I think given that there are a lot of really great reasons on both sides of the equation of whether or not you need a co-founder, um, and you really need to decide on your own based on your specific situation. If you do go with a co-founder, what do you look for? What are the most important factors in choosing one? I think the most common answer is to choose someone with a complementary skill set or someone who can do the things that you can't do. I think that, you know, although that's definitely a consideration, I would argue it's not the most important one. I think it's okay to have a partner with, uh, with someone who doesn't have a completely complementary skill set because you can always hire around the holes in your joint skill set. I think the most important considerations are, one, whether you have the same intentions and values, because if you don't, it's going to be a long road. You know, for example, it's really important to be aligned with why you're building the business. So if one person wants to build a high growth VC backed business, um, you know, that's great. That's what a lot of founders, that's a path that a lot of founders choose. However, however, if the other person is looking to build a slower, steady growth business that allows them to have balance in their lives and still do what they love and make a good salary, that's completely okay too. But those two people should not be co-founders because that's going to lead to a lot of conflict. And then just lastly, like really simple, do you like working with them and do you trust them? You're going to end up spending a lot of time with your co-founder. So you have to make sure it's someone you enjoy being around and someone with integrity who you'll never doubt um, whether they have your yours and your best interest and your your business's best interests in mind, um, that's really the only way to get through the highs and lows of of being a founder. So um, I know I didn't provide a definitive answer today on whether or not you need a co-founder for your business, but hopefully I've given you some things to think about. Yeah, no, this is great. This is a hot topic, and it's a really complicated one. Uh, I I think obviously having a founder infinitely compounds the number of issues you might have in management unless you guys, you know, the two people have like a really good vibe and are aligned on values. Um, but it does fill gaps. I think it's a lot easier to see people doing a solo co-founder situation when they have more experience than when they're beginners. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of some signal for people to look at. Uh, one of the arguments I hear people think about with their founder dynamic is, well, I can own more if there's no one else there. And an interesting perspective on this, I kind of think in venture, not always, if you have like the middle outcomes, it matters a lot. It's a little bit binary. If you end up making 10, 20, 30 million dollars, it doesn't matter if you could have made 50 or 60. Uh, there is a little right. bit of math behind that. Once you have more money than you need, you can compound it. 
So it's a kind of an, a, a little bit more absolute than relative. Once you get above your, all the things you would need to buy in your life, that extra money can just grow. And so there's a, there's a big difference between making $2 million and $10 million, but there's a diminishing difference between 10 and 20. So it's a, it's a tough choice overall. I mean, it certainly does lead to a lot of problems, but, you know, it's a tough road to hoe also going solo. Um, you know, Fong, you've, uh, you had a co-founder last go. If you were to start again, would you have a founder, co-founder with you? Or are you at the point now that you have so much experience where you would go solo? Um, I think I would have a co-founder again. Like I think that now I have a better insight on kind of the type of co-founder I would need having, you know, gone through it before. I really can't imagine doing it by myself, but, um, you know, I, I just have more perspective on kind of the type of person and, and the skills that I would want that person to have. And I, I wouldn't need them to have all the skills that I don't have. Right. Like if there's, that's the, the one pitfall that a lot of people get into. Um, it's more about how well you guys get along, you know, how like the personal experience you have with them um, and how that factors into your relationship. You know, the values thing you brought up is really important. I just want to touch on that before we sign out on this topic. Um, I've always thought that ministers, priests, rabbis should have a form that couples fill out. They agree on location, religion, how they're going to spend money. All the things that end up leading to divorce, those are fairly observable, discussable things up front. And I think there's a yeah. parallel in that between, you know, marriage and partnership. And there's probably some form here that should be like, hey, these are the six questions we need to answer independently, come together and discuss and get aligned on before we jump in. Maybe we should create that. That'd be kind of fun. But um you know, looking at this, it's a, uh, all these conflicts, like they, they're totally resolvable in most cases before you even start. And if they're not resolvable, you shouldn't partner. Exactly. Basic questions that you need to answer. Um, I think that having the, those conversations, but I do think, you know, a lot of co-founders have personal relationships before entering into a business together. And that also is helpful. You know, if you really kind of have a deep uh, trust in them, like really understand how they handle stress, how they deal, you know, with highs and lows, that's also really helpful as well. Very cool. Fong, awesome as always. Thank you so much. So last week I got in trouble with my wife. She was upset that I didn't do an outro, like the ending of the podcast. We're not doing it again today. Here's to you, honey.